true character is revealed in truly difficult circumstances. Never is the character of the church more tested and most exposed than in the moments of testing and trials. Throughout church history, the church, by God's protective grace and sovereign guidance, has proven itself to remain or be able to remain, even under the most extreme of circumstances. This morning we have the opportunity to ponder upon the church's history and look upon the adversity as experienced by simply looking upon a few verses in Colossians chapter 4. It is here there, then, that we find our final precept for Christian relationships. And so if you haven't done so already, I invite you to please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 4. And I want to continue or finalize the message that I've titled Precepts for Christian Relationships. And I want to look on the fifth and final precept, which I have said Christian relationships persist in peril. I do ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, and reading through the end of the chapter, the end of the book. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called uh, Justice, These are the only men of the the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. And now verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. You may be seated. It is said that in AD 64 that Rome burned and Nero fiddled. It's unlikely that Nero actually fiddled during the burning of Rome. But that was the state of his reputation at the time. Nero found himself emperor because of the actions of his own mother, whose actions themselves were questionable. She was married to the emperor Claudius, 
And so Agrippina, that's her name, convinced Claudius to adopt Nero as his own son and then to place Nero before his own children in the line for the throne to ensure that Nero would indeed inherit the throne. Agrippina then murdered Claudius, her own husband. And by this, Nero did indeed become the next emperor at the age of 17. And now in AD 64, just a few days, few years later, he was untrusted by the people. Nero had to find a way then to restore that reputation. They called out for him, knowing or, or saying that he did not defend them during Rome's burning. And so to deflect blame from himself and to restore his own reputation, he began to place blame on the Christians. And though persecution and oppression had previously occurred, now under Nero was officially government-sanctioned and permitted it is underneath Nero that both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul were put to death. And then by Nero's very own example, Christian persecution became more acceptable, so that under the reigns of other people, other emperors, it became more acceptable as well. Under the reigns of people like Marcus Aurelius, who's allowed anti-Christian informers to thrive, which ultimately resulted in the death of the Bishop of Lyons and the martyrdom of Justin Martyr. A hundred years later after that, Diocletian would then lead the great persecution in hopes with a goal of trying to extinguish all of Christianity. Of course, we know that Christianity never did die. In fact, it thrived. It's one of the great mysteries and displays of God's power that through persecution and through oppression, Christianity does not fail to flourish, but instead fails to perish. Prior to the time of Nero and even Diocletian years later, still under the reign of Nero, we have the Colossian, Colossian Church. And it faces its own troubling times. The Colossians lived in a world, whether religious or not, was very suspicious of who Christians were. It ostracized the professing Christians, relegating them to inferiority in the world. It oppressed the professing Christians, perhaps even causing them to question the legitimacy of their very own Messiah. For Christians in general during this time, it was a time of trials and testing, but it was also a time that refined their own faith. For the church, for the Colossian church, the Colossians faced some internal struggles and trials in the form of false teaching. They were forced to contend with the faith, and the existence of the church was being threatened by the outcome of that. It was at this time that their relationships made a difference. Their relationship with their pastor, Epaphras, who we talked about, proved to be very pivotal as he labored on their behalf to the point that he not only prays wholeheartedly for them, but he even travels all the way to Rome to seek wise counsel. That wise counsel came in the form of the Apostle Paul. This morning, Paul extends his list of greetings for us. 
He calls attention now to some more specific circumstances, and that points to the reality of how the Christian relationships persist in peril. That is to say that when trials are present and when circumstances threaten the faithfulness of the church, it is the relationships that cause the body of Christ to continue. And we see this exemplified in four different ways. I want you to note first, as we talk about Christian relationships persisting in peril, I want you to note that Christians function in fellowship. Christians function in fellowship. Paul has offered the greetings of many at this point, saying people like Epaphras and Aristarchus and John Mark, they all send their greetings, but now we see a transition where Paul sends his very own greetings. And then he says this in verse 15, Give my greetings, give Paul's greetings, to the brothers at Laodicea, and to Nympha and the church in her house. We've been analyzing Christian relationships now for five weeks, and it should already be made very clear that God's construct for human growth is not in isolation but in association. That God advances his kingdom not in seclusion but in cooperation. We've seen this theme repeated throughout the text, that cooperation exhibits a unique element of fellowship now. What we previously saw was a fellowship that existed on an individual level, meaning between individual and individual, or one individual and the church. But now what we see is that that exists on a corporate level. Notice what Paul says. He asked the church in Colossae to convey his greetings to the church in Laodicea. And so we have entire churches now associating with one another. But why does Paul do that? According to verse 16 that we're going to see, that Paul has already written a letter to the Laodiceans. And probably he's already sent his greetings and expressed his affection to them there. So why would he ask the Colossians then to convey those greetings again? Because it means he can foster fellowship. Fellowship in this era between two churches is no small task. The city of Hierapolis is 15 miles away from Colossae. The city of Laodicea is slightly closer it's only 10 miles away. But in either case, this is not an insignificant journey in those days. To connect fellow believers in those towns, it didn't happen by chance. It required a purpose and planning. And the fact that Paul expects the letters and greetings that he's given to already be read there shows there's, there's some sort of connection already taking place. Paul himself exemplifies this partnership in ministry by simply looking at the letters he has written, looking at the ones in the New Testament, the 13 there, we see this vast network, a huge association of partnerships and associations, and, and they're spread across this huge empire. They're separated by great distances and major mountain ranges and landscapes like deserts. This is more astounding when we remember that this was a time that did not have the same technology like we had. There were no cars and planes to quickly get you from point A to point B. 
Even more, they, they didn't even have provisions like McDonald's and Chick-fil-A. How could they survive? <laughs> to travel the distances between those cities, the places of Paul's ministry, it required a commitment of time and even a sacrifice of personal finances, not to mention that there was potential danger in any of that travel. In some cases, like weather, like we saw in Acts 28 with the shipwreck in Malta, but also from thieves and bandits. I think that points to the significance and importance of functioning in fellowship. The fellowship was a critical element, an essential element, critical for this time of the church. There were perils that were threatening the church. From the outside is always the possibility of persecution for these groups of Christians. But from the inside, we see that there's also threats against the meaningfulness and seriousness of the church gathering through false teaching. So from the outside, we have things like persecution, which we see in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7 with the stoning of Stephen. Or Acts chapter 12 with the martyrdom of James, the brother of John. Again, Christians in general were always looked upon with suspicion because of their strange ways, like gathering behind closed doors and, and things like communion. And then internally, we see this division taking place. We look first at the Church of Laodicea. It began about the same time as the Colossian Church. And at that time, it seemed to be, to some degree, at least a thriving body of believers. But then by the time we get to John's impending death it, in Revelation... We see that Jesus describes the church in Revelation 3, 14 through 22 in our scripture reading this morning as being lukewarm. The Colossian church itself facing the false teaching that undermines the true teachings of Christ. And this strangely absence is, is a mention of the church in Heriopolis. Paul fails to mention a church here in our text and even in his introduction in Colossians 2.1, when he lists the other churches, he doesn't mention Heriopolis. And yet, there's evidence that there was a church there at one time. It's likely that false teachings already swept them away. So the threat of persecution from the outside and division from the inside, it coerces Christians to function in fellowship. To function in this way compels encouragement accountability, and prayer. Though the times were difficult and probably even very discouraging to the point that it compelled Epaphras to travel all the way to Rome. And yet, it's opportunities like these that bring about moments to encourage one another. Likewise, they, they, these are moments when the various bodies can come together and just maintain accountability so that when one is starting to stray, the other group can come alongside and offer a gracious assessment to guide the church back towards the Lord. And then in this way, fellowship then really is a means to protect his people, both individually and corporately. It protects his people from venturing into heresy or flirting with depravity. Most importantly, this fellowship is a means for prayer. We've seen prayer spread throughout the book of Colossians already. 
We've seen it at the introduction, we've seen it in the conclusion, and we've seen it throughout the middle. And so this function and fellowship promotes prayer for one another. There was a point in my life, and I don't do this now because of the political situation, in which every three years I would head to Venezuela. And I was always impressed by the connection between the churches, at least within a particular region there. Not even exaggerating that though they were separated by distances and, and getting from place to place is not near as easy as it is here. And yet when there was a pregnancy in one church in the north, the churches, all of them would gather there and participate in a baby shower. When there was an outreach in the hills, the churches would all gather together and send workers to support that effort. I think of one man that I know, a pastor who's been jailed multiple times, sometimes even beaten for his faith. And every time the churches gathered together and provided provisions for the body, they even provided somebody to give temporary shepherding to the church up there. And ultimately, even to provide safety and security for his wife and two children. This is the body of Christ that functions in fellowship not just within its own body, but with the other bodies. And so Christians function in fellowship. But I want you to note second, Christians gather in grace. The Lord's structure for the Christian life is defined by two God-given institutions. The very first institution, the very basic, is the family. The second institution is the church. It is by these institutions that the Lord brings order to chaos, that he provides stability in an unstable world, and that ultimately he imparts his grace to those who need it the most. And so part of the Lord's intention is for the church, the, the body of Christ, the Christians, to gather in grace. We see that in our text, noting again in verse 15 that Paul sends further greetings to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. From this text, it's established the reality that the church in Laodicea meets in the home of Nympha. We know also that the church in Colossae meets in the home of Philemon, according to Philemon chapter 2, or verse 2. This reveals something about the structure of the early church. That the early church was orchestrated around smaller and more intimate settings, meeting in the homes of its members rather than in buildings that were dedicated solely to that purpose. Our expectation, at least today and in the United States, is that worship, corporate worship, only occurs in the setting of a building meant only for that purpose. But there's no evidence of the church ever owning property until the third century. And so until that time, the church seems to gather in the homes of the people. Why do you think that is? What is it that could have possibly influenced that decision? Think about your church history a little bit and consider that from the death of Christ through several centuries later, persecution against Christians was common. I already mentioned Nero who used Christians as scapegoats in AD 64. Domitian ruling from 81 to 96 didn't take kindly to Christians who refused to worship the same gods, specifically him, and that resulted in an increase in 
persecution both against Jews and Christians. And then ruling after Domitian was Trajan, who instituted policies specifically against Christians to the point that he even writes to one of his governors, they, Christians, are not to be hunted out, although any who are accused and convicted should be punished with the proviso that if a man says he is not a Christian and makes it obvious by his actual conduct, namely by worshiping our gods, then however suspect he may have been with regard to the past, he should gain pardon from his repentance. Throughout his, his reign, there are all kinds of edicts and instructions on him how to treat the Christians. And this continued until the third century. And at that point, persecution lessened slightly. And then in AD 312, the Emperor Constantine, having been victorious in a battle after praying to the Christian God, transformed the attitude towards Christians to the point that he issued the Edict of Milan a year later. And that edict is the first that declared a tolerance, a sweeping tolerance for Christians. And so over the course of three centuries, you can observe that as persecution lessened, then property ownership increased. We see this today in other countries where homes are often the common place to gather simply because it's not safe to meet in a building. They want to avoid attracting attention. It's interesting because today here, we view our homes as a way to seclude ourselves from one another. But there was a time when the home was used as a place of ministry. The home was, it still is, was a gift from the Lord. And so it was to be used for his glory. It's because of that qualification or because of that reality, the qualification for eldership was hospitality that we, we talked about two weeks ago. If the leadership was not hospitable and opened their home to the church, the church would have no place to gather at that time. In his commentary, John Calvin actually rightly points out something, that a house church brings new meaning to the phrase, raising the house up in the fear of the Lord. Homes were a place of ministry. They're actually still a place of ministry. I've taught and discussed that point in three different contexts this week. And by most, the conclusion reached by most is the recognition that sometimes the most significant moments of ministry have happened in the home. I think the modern mentality has done two disservices to the church. The first is to define the church as a building. The other is to define the church as a spiritual gathering only. One says that the church is a physical gathering and only under certain circumstances and under certain conditions <coughs> is the church actually coming together and does church happen. But on the other one, it says that church is never a physical gathering. One says that the church only happens in the church building. And so it divides one's life between what happens in here and what happens out there, and the two actually don't have to intersect in that mentality. The other says church happens wherever I am, and I don't need the body of Christ. Both of those deny the importance and priority of the physical gathering of believers together for the purposes of worshiping God, serving God, and learning about God. The Lord warns against both those attitudes. 
writing to the Hebrews, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. In fact, it's interesting because that same verse in Hebrews 10.25 goes on, it goes further and appeals to the believers, saying that as you get closer to the return of Christ, you should be meeting actually more. The Lord assures the Corinthians that when they are assembled in the name of Christ, they are gathered and assembled with the spirit and power of Christ. So we see a spiritual element there. The church is a physical gathering with the spiritual element of God's presence. And it becomes a place in which the Lord manifests his grace. By the church gathering, God's grace is manifested. By the church gathering, God's grace is magnified. By the church gathering, God's grace is multiplied. And so Christians gather in grace. I want you to note third. Christians contemplate in community. That is to say that Christians grow by coming together and learning together as a group. The irony of this point, actually, is that I outlined it Friday night, which is we were attending that Foundations Conference, that Creation Conference taking place at Castle Rock. And what was taking place? Christians were contemplating in community God's creation. And so Christians contemplate in community. Pay attention to what it says in verse 16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. I was at a meeting of pastors this week. There were about 20 of us actually doing the same thing, contemplating in community. But there were 20 of us discussing the concept of friendship. And at one point, we were given these huge sheets of paper and then we'd stick them on the wall and just write out some thoughts about friendship. And then we were supposed to discuss it. And so as we did that, we finished up and I, I turned to the person next to me who is a great friend of mine. And I know he's a good guy because he drinks coffee. And he actually off subject but not only does he drink coffee and that's a sign of a good person I guess in my life but he turned me to a specific roaster and that roaster names each coffee based on a specific doctrine their decaf brand is called heresy so, so he was leading me towards truth <laughs> anyways this, this friend of mine, we turned to each other. We started sharing about friendship. And then he said something critical. He said, in the moment, I am content alone. But when I review my time at the end of the week or the end of the month, the moments I enjoyed the most and the moments where I learned the most were those moments when I was with others. Several weeks now, we've been discussing relationships as God's design, and that was reiterated this morning. But it's not just for support and encouragement. It's God's design that we learn in community as well. We grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ by learning and growing with others. That's conveyed by Proverbs 27, 17. That oft-quoted verse that says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Colossians 4.16 gives us a sense of how that happens. 
in the context of the relationships in the local church. It says, and when this letter has been read among you, you have it read also to the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. If you don't already know, it was not uncommon for letters from one place to be circulated with those from another place, even though they weren't addressed to the other. That's what we see here. The letter for the Colossians was to be read at the church in Laodicea, and the letter for the church in Laodicea was to be read at the church of the Colossians. Apparently, that means there's another letter, another Pauline epistle we don't have access to, that letter to the Laodiceans. Some of those think that the letter is actually the Ephesians letter we have. And they think this primarily because way back in church history, there was one church father who labeled that one the epistle to the Laodiceans. It's really hard to know with certainty. But here's the thing. I'm not really bothered by that, and you shouldn't be either. I told my students on Friday that because God is truth, all truth must be revealed by God. And so in this case, if he deemed the letter to the Laodiceans as unnecessary, unnecessary for, for my knowledge and my knowledge of the truth that he's chosen to reveal to me, then I trust I have all I need to know right here. That everything that might have been in that letter that's crucial is contained elsewhere in Scripture. Even more, our, our God is an all-powerful God. It's certainly within his capability to preserve a letter for scripture if he had chosen to. And the fact that he chose not to means I don't need to concern myself with it. But we do know, at least at this time, there are two letters. And those two letters were crucial for those two churches, at least. And so what happens? Well, first, they exchange the letters with one another. And they share the truths found within each but second, then they gather together to hear them read. That's where we get our notion for the public reading of scripture during the worship service. That's the idea conveyed there, have them read, read them out loud publicly. Part of this we recognize was just a product of the times. The printing press wouldn't come for centuries later. Copies were not exactly easy to produce. The public reading of those letters then was a means of getting the information to a larger group of people, to everyone, because otherwise they're not all going to have access to the letter. But there's another aspect that's often less talked about. The literacy rate of the day was significantly less. It didn't have to be very high. It would make sense. Less ability to access writing materials less ability to access copies or, or fewer books. There wasn't a great need for literacy at the day. Certainly some did read, we know that. Paul clearly did to some degree, because he writes. So how does the church handle that? They came together in community and they adapted to the needs of one another to grow together. They contemplated and, and conversed in community. Michael Bird points out something crucial about the early church, saying, the circulation of the letters show how the church first functioned, not in private study, but a community act undertaken in the context of worship and shared meals. We're not self-contained units of knowledge. We grow most when we grow together. 
Learning is not a solo endeavor, but it always, always happens within the context of the community. First and foremost, it occurs with the help of the Holy Spirit, in community with the Spirit, as Jesus said it would when he told the disciples, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. But that's not the ending point of knowledge, that's the starting point. Because after saying that in, in John chapter 14, and after his death and burial and resurrection and ascension, then we come to Acts and we get this model of the church. And that model portrayed in, in Acts is that there was growth in groups. By gifting relationships, the Lord has created a means to further cause growth. We see this just as an example in, in the letter to the Philippians. And Paul tells them, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those others who walk according to the example you have in us. That's growth together. At the inauguration of the church in Acts chapter 2, after Paul, after Peter, sorry, gives this sermonette, this mini-sermon, the first thing we learn about the church is its purpose in verse 42 of that same chapter. And it describes the church as devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Because our God is perfect, never making a mistake, then I expect that his design for contemplating a community is also perfect. Being all wise and all knowing, the Lord has devised a perfect means for Christian growth. And at a humble submission to that process comes this explosion of personal growth. We see this in how Jesus discipled the apostles and in how Paul mentored younger men like Timothy and how John taught those who came to him later on in his late life. When we reject things like the corporate gathering of, for worship or things like discipleship or group Bible studies, we reject the Lord's will for our growth to contemplate in community. Christians gather in grace that they may contemplate in community. And that actually leads us then to our final point in verse 17. Verse 17 exemplifies this. The text reads, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Archippus and Philemon is referred to as a fellow soldier in Christ. I say style of phrase reserved only for those who are doing some sort of pastoral role. So that tells us something about who Archippus is, that he's functioning as an elder of some sorts, at least. The fact that Archippus is mentioned at all in the letter to Philemon is notable, because that letter is more personal. If you read through that letter, it, it lacks the names and the greetings that we see in, in most of Paul's other letters. He ends here listing 12 names in Colossians, but at the end of Philemon, he mentions a couple of his co-workers and then just says very quickly, they send greetings. It doesn't single out anyone else to send greetings to. And it doesn't tell the churches to greet one another. Just a few of his co-workers send greetings. The letter itself is simply addressed to Philemon. And then it mentions two other people, Aphia and Archippus. The personal nature of that letter suggests that 
that's his family. That Aphius, Philemon's wife, and Archippus is their son. We know that the church meets in Philemon's home, that the Colossian church meets in Philemon's home. And so it seems that Archippus is basically their interim pastor while Epaphras is away, while he's in Rome seeking Paul's counsel. And yet he seems to be young and learning. And so Paul tells the church to say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. That's discipleship. That's leadership development. That's mentorship. And so I want you to note finally, Christians disciple in development. Again, this this reiterates what we just saw in the previous verses. It shows it just more deeply now because it's specifically applying it to Archippus. The median pastor lasts roughly two years, and yet it takes pastors three years to know their congregation, and it takes congregations three years to know their pastors. And so people aren't even allowing the relationship to develop before they separate. About half the time, it's pastors who are just unwilling to extend the grace and the patience for those he's called to serve. And the other half of the time, it's the church running off the new pastor, simply because he doesn't do things as they want him to. It's easy to pass blame. It's easy to make accusations. But the reality is that it's just a problem of relationship in which both are unwilling to put forth the effort that relationships really require. I can give you a long list of pastors who have stayed in the ministry for 20, 30, 40 years. You yourselves have experienced that. And that's a tremendous blessing because that's not the norm. There are a lot of reasons people pull out of ministry. Moral failure, exhaustion, they're sidetracked by the world, they get mad and quit, they're disappointed, they're frustrated, the list could go on and on. Whether Archippus is needed in need of encouragement or he needs to be chastised, I don't know. But clearly something's happened here to the point that Paul tells the church body and reminds Archippus himself to fulfill his duty from the Lord. At the Battle of Trefgar in 1805, standing before the soldiers and Marines of England, Lord Nelson really didn't spend a lot of time hyping up the soldiers and getting them into a frenzy. He basically said very simply, England expects every man to do his duty. That's what's happening here. It's just reminding Archibus, fulfill your duty. Is that encouraging him to do it because he's discouraged? Or is that he's failing to do something and he needs to be reminded? I don't know. But Paul does the same thing in another mentor relationship. In 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy the same thing. Fulfill your ministry. This is just a picture of discipleship to develop leaders. It's how the church ensures its continuity by discipling the next generation of men and women who will become the next deacons, the next deaconesses, the next elders. But it's not just the individual church ensuring its own continuity. It's the church then ensuring the continuity of the global church. Because through discipleship, the local church then contributes to the Great Commission. It, by raising up those who will go out as missionaries into the world or those who may go out and become the next pastor of the church down the road 
Or maybe they'll plant the next church down the road. I don't know. The church is in perilous times. And it's the absence of this aspect of the church that leads first to the lukewarmness that we saw that was the downfall of the church of Laodicea. But even more, as the church faces more hostility and oppression, if we lack discipling and lack developing people, the future church will not be on a strong footing to remain confident in Christ. They're more likely to desert the church or defect for the world, as we saw last week when we talked about Demas. And so as we mentor or develop or disciple, we raise up pastors and missionaries and even leadership for our own church. And, and people are more mobile these days. Maybe they'll move away and never become part of the church. At the very least, you've just discipled somebody to be able to be a leader in another church. And that's not a bad thing. I can give you a list right now of 21 churches looking for a pastor. Most of those churches are like us. They're solid, they're Bible-believing churches. They're stable. And yet some of those churches have been without a pastor three, four, in a couple of cases, five years. I attribute that to the lack of intentional discipleship and mentorship modeled by the Apostle Paul, and most importantly, by the Lord Jesus Christ. The church that advances is the church that disciples in development. Though it's been afflicted, the church is secured, protected by the Lord's right hand, so that through compulsion, domination, oppression, the church not only survives, it thrives. And when the circumstances seem to be at their peak, the early Christians, at least of Asia Minor, in our example here of Colossae, they offer a precedent for the church that at those moments the body of Christ does not forsake the gathering of the saints, it perpetuates it. Given an example of our text this morning is, is that in affliction, Christians function in fellowship. They continue to fellowship with one another, even when it may seem dangerous or result in them being oppressed even more. They gather in grace. It's actually at those moments of all times when the saints need to be reminded of God's grace more. And so it's received most in that gathering. Christians contemplate in community. Not being a solo endeavor, they gather together to meditate upon the truth of the Lord, guiding one another towards sanctification while growing themselves into sanctification. And finally, Christians disciple and development. In perilous times, when it is easiest to defect, Christians disciple and they mentor one another, creating a body of believers who will boldly and willfully stand against attacks, taking a stand for Christ, the same Christ who once took a stand for them. There was a pastor in one of the African countries He'd been brought over to the United States to just share with a couple of groups <clears throat> about the persecution that had reached his nation. At one point during a question and answer time at one of those churches, one lady expressed her sorrow over the situation and she tried to offer encouragement to the pastor. And he responded, please do not worry about us. 
I have great concern for you and the church here. We are are reminded every day of the cost of following Christ. And in those perils, we are compelled to make a choice between being faithful or perishing. But here, you have so many things to distract you and lead you away from Christ and into the world. It must be very difficult to be a Christian here. Christians persist in peril. As he often does, Paul closes out letters to the Colossians, to all letters, but specifically to the Colossians with these final greetings, both from himself and from those who are with him. Frequently, we read those verses very quickly, rarely pondering if they have any significance of all. We have names like Tychicus and, and men like Onesimus, Aristarchus, John Mark, Epaphras, and Luke, Hustus, and, and Demas, even Demas. And what we have is a presentation of the extent of Paul's ministry. He's clearly a man focused on people to the point that he even remembers their names. For five weeks now, we paused long enough to examine them and to see their relationship both with God and with Paul. That's what we've learned are five precepts for Christian relationships. First, that Christians are connected through Christ. They will serve together for Christ. They will suffer together for Christ. They will share experiences together for Christ. And they are sanctified together for Christ. And because they're connected through Christ and connected in Christ, Christian relationships then reflect Christ. It's the second precept. They express Christ's affection. Christ grace, they will express Christ goodness, and ultimately they will express Christ comfort. Third, through the example of Epaphras, we see that Christians are connected in Christ through prayer. And fourth, just last week, the the connection in Christ determines the quality of the relationship. Though they were two opposite individuals, Luke and Demas, we, we see that the character of our relationship is dependent both on one another's condition in Christ, and also on somebody else's condition in Christ. And now finally we see that Christians persist in peril. When you bring all of this together, if you were to sum it up in what we've learned, I think you would have to sum it up this way, that the relationship we have with Christ should cause our relationship with others to flourish. And the relationship we have with others should cause our relationship with Christ to flourish. Let's pray. Our Father God, you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. That begins at salvation by giving us life through the death of your Son. But Father, you've also given us these perfect relationships, which are only made imperfect by our sinfulness, Lord. And and yet, Lord, we see that Christians are made to connect in community, Lord. Father, we give you great praise for bringing us together, for causing us to encourage one another, to pray for one another, and to hold one another accountable. Father, continue to build our relationships But build those relationships, not that we see each other more, but that we will see you more as a result. May our relationships draw us closer to you. And so, Father, we thank you for this time.
committing it all into your hands. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.